Easy Original. I find when people complain on Twitter, as soon as you answer them back or engage them, they immediately back down. Is it, yeah, as long as you do it in a civil way. Then you oh yeah, well I experienced that, that over the years with email. Yes. Where I'd get, I'd get white hot emails from people, you are the scum of the they earth. And I've had them never listen to I'm, you. I, I am sorry I sent that to yeah, you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 15 of season three. We are here with your latest Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evans. And I'm Leah Martin. I think we have a, a new kind of an addition here to the sheet of the Studio BZ because it says officially Austin's number one podcast. <laughs> wow. It always used to just say Austin's number one podcast. And now it says officially Austin's number one podcast. Paperwork? Well, I think it would be from uh, your interview with right. Siomo. Oh, that's right. They, the the city councilor. The city yeah. councilor so at, least, at least until he leaves office next year. <laughs> then we'll have to start again yeah. fresh with someone. We've new. got some time. Right. Once, it's, once it's in ink, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, that's right. That's permanent. I'll make it happen. These guys are terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. He, he did not say that we are Austin's number one podcast. He just did not say we are not. He didn't just say that. If we are not... Ergo, we are. That's Possession how I look at this. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, may I remind you. <laughs> All right, so what do we have this week? We have uh, a lot. We've got uh, Shalane Flanagan. Lisa Hughes does a one-on-one with her. Of course, the uh, former New York City Marathon winner and has run Boston many, many times. She's going to be joining the WBZ broadcast this year as an analyst during the race. So Lisa is talking with her about what to watch out for in this year's Boston Marathon. And will Shalane's good friend, Des Linden, win it again? That'll be interesting. And wow, what a dust-up for just the other day between newly elected Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins and Governor Charlie Baker. Wild. Uh, I had a chance to sit down and talk at some length with the DA, unfortunately, I guess, before this whole thing erupted. But if you want to know a little bit more about the woman behind this controversy and uh, about her philosophy about criminal justice that's causing all this controversy, I'll be talking at length with the new Suffolk County DA. And then a really fascinating person who's right in our midst here in Boston, the Consul General of Greece in Boston, Stratos Ephthimiou, uh, who is here. Uh, and every year, the Alpha Omega Council, which is the Greek-American philanthropic organization, uh, hosts this beautiful Greek wreath ceremony. This year, again, it's going to be at the State House. It really kicks off Marathon Weekend. The wreaths, which are given to the winners of the Boston Marathon, are brought made in Marathon Greece. They're dipped in gold now so that the winners can keep them uh, as a commemoration of their huge win. And there's this whole ceremony that's been built up around it over the last more than 35 years and an essay contest for students. And uh, we'll interview them about this beautiful historic tradition between Marathon Greece and Boston. Shalane Flanagan is one of the fastest women in the world. She's a Marblehead, Massachusetts native. She's a four-time Olympian, the 2017 New York City Marathon winner, and she holds the American course record for women on the Boston course with a time of 2.22.02. And this year, she is part of our broadcast team on the photo bridge calling the race on Marathon Monday. So let's talk a little bit about this year's race. What do you think are some of the most interesting storylines this year going into the marathon? You know, having the defending champions coming back um, again this year, I think is is really cool. And then just in general, um, the Americans just really did an exceptional job 
in those conditions last year. And yeah, will another American men or man or woman, um, you know, capture a title again? That's always a fun discussion. <laughs> yes, it, it definitely is. And, and now it's a very real discussion after your victory in New York and Dez's victory here. You know, I feel like we always knew that there was a very, very strong field, particularly of American women. Um, but but now there's just been this this groundswell. And at all levels, it seems that uh, American women are no longer in the shadow of these East Africans. Last year, the weather was so important um, in part because um, so many people were hypothermic. Do you think this year, if the conditions are similar, that we'll see more of the athletes, for lack of a better word, bundling up? You know, Des never took her jacket off last year. Yeah, I think um, those that experienced uh, the conditions last year learned a lot of valuable lessons. Like, I came away thinking to myself, like, I should have worn, um, you know, a, a snowsuit, and I would have felt much better. <laughs> and I, would, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have suffered so poorly. But yeah, I mean, clothing choice is a really big variable in those conditions. And I think a lot of people learned uh, what worked and what didn't and unfortunately had to suffer through if they made poor choices. But, you know, I thought I was wearing a lot of clothing. I had two ja- jackets on. And again, like says, I never took mine off. And as my coach, you know, wished me well on the start line, he's like, oh, you're not going to need that upper, you know, the the layer, um, the black jacket, you're going to shed that at some point. And I never did. And I wish I had more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's those, you know, those choices make a big difference over 26 miles, especially um, when the conditions are adverse for running. You know, I know a number of these runners too, um, either dropped out last year or, or didn't make it to the start line because of injury. And I'm thinking specifically about Jordan Hesse and Dathan Ritzenheim, both coming back this year. Um, psychologically, what kind of a position are, do you think that they are in as they enter this race? Um, I think sometimes those setbacks, as I like to say, are set up for a comeback. And so both of those athletes, you know, Dathan hasn't completed a marathon in four years. So he's had four years to think about his running his next marathon. Um, And so they're just, they're both exceptionally motivated, talented athletes. And when healthy, I mean, they're they're the best that we have. So I think the beauty of sometimes injuries, even though we don't want to go through them, is that they're forced rest and force recovery. And I just read something where Jordan said recently that, you know, after having not been able to run a marathon the last year, she had obviously a lot of downtime and recovery time, but she feels very refreshed. And, you know, after my injury um, and not being able to run Boston one year, you know, that's the same thing I felt. It's just, it's a refresher. So mentally and physically, um, you feel actually quite better having taken that little force break. So I think the two of them are going to be, um, really raring to go mentally and physically. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I went out to Arizona and interviewed Des out there and saw one of her track workouts. And, um, you know, you you and I both know, I mean, she she lives very much in the middle. You know, she's a very disciplined person, um, not prone to super high highs or super low lows. Um, and so when I said, well, how much has this changed your life? She sort of laughed. She said, I'm I'm still a marathoner. I'm the same person. And whatever I'm experiencing right now, as exciting as it is, is probably temporary, you know, sort of took it in stride. But there is, she said, a part of her that wants to be able to prove that she 
can do this again. She said, you know, I have this ability to downplay my own accomplishments and to second guess myself. And I wondered, and I talked to Josh Cox about this, her agent, I wondered if that has the same effect as almost as taking time off in that um, in your mind, you have something to prove and it keeps you in that underdog mentality. Yeah, I, you know, I think everyone thought that obviously Des was the grittiest athlete on that day. Um, but yeah, you know, the the fact that it was a, just a different, different type of race. And so I think a lot of people, um, you know, maybe downplayed some of her accomplishments. And I think that has given her this, like, this great fuel and great edge to just say, you know what? No, I'm capable of doing this on any type of day. And, you know, we, we know that I right. know that Des right. was close, close second one year, um, and almost one within two seconds. Um, so I think that's a great asset though. It's something that is going to fuel her for many years to come. And I think that's, that's actually a great tool for her to have. <laughs> you know, I'm curious too, you know, you, you know, this course as well as anyone, this really is your home course, you know, being from Marblehead and seeing your dad race this course, how important are the spectators on race day? And, and, and is there a difference in, in what they provide when the weather is not good? Because, you know, when the weather's yes. good, you have everybody like pouring out of their homes. They're watching our coverage. They know when the elites are coming. Yeah. So they so they spill out onto the street. Does does the value of the crowd change when the weather is lousy? I believe having my experience last year with hypothermia, I don't really remember much past halfway. Um, and the difference was in the fact that I completed the Boston Marathon last year was solely because of the people that were out cheering on the course. And um, you know, when you're having a good day and the weather's good, it's easy to find motivation to finish because you're feeling good. You know, the, the fans are out in droves. But when the weather is arduous and you're wondering how you're going to get to the finish line, you're miserable, your body just aches. You know, that's when the fans, to me, are the most vital. And I was in such a state of delirium and hypothermia that in the last, I don't know, I guess somewhere in the last six miles, there was actually so much cheering that for a split second, I thought, maybe I'm winning. Maybe maybe <laughs> I'm like winning the race. Maybe people in front of me have dropped out. And I genuinely, because they were so intense and so supportive, I thought I was winning the Boston Marathon for, you know, maybe like half mile. And then reality set in when some other women started passing me again. And I'm like, uh-oh, no, I'm definitely not winning. Um, but that was how vital it was. It, it kept me motivated. Like, oh, well, I should keep going because, you know, maybe I'm winning. These fans believe in me so much and are out here in this miserable weather. And it was like the lifeline that I needed to get to Boylston Street. And it was absolutely crucial. I, I love that. Again, I can I can just imagine at that moment, like, wait a second. Yes. <laughs> There's way too much <laughs> volume here for this not to be a good yes. thing. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, gosh, you're cheering so loudly for me. Maybe I'm really doing something great right now. And I just don't know it. So, Well, I'm just I'm so looking forward to being on the broadcast booth with you again, because your insight is so valuable and you've had all these experiences. I'm curious, you're because you're preparing now in a totally different way than you would if you were running. Uh, what has this bit build up to the 2019 Boston Marathon been like for you? <laughs> well, I get to start geeking out 
over all of uh, <laughs> all of the athletes and reading all this great journalism. And there's so many great interviews that it's like each morning I wake up and I scour social media and look for things to read and absorb. And it's so fun to read people's journey and their story. And, um, you know, I'm excited to share you know, some funny anecdotes of what happened to me on the course last year between Des and I and just the com the comical, almost laughable moments, um, you know, just trying to finish the, the, the marathon on that day it was just it was hard. And um, but, yeah, I, I love I love knowing what people are going through because. I believe the marathon makes everyone better. And I think the journey to get to the start line and the finish line, there's so much to be said and told and inspiring um, stories. So yeah, my preparation is going well. I love it. I have a lot of fun and I can't wait to um, chat with you and Tony um, for three hours about um, all the good stuff that um, I've been studying. Well, it's excellent because I have a feeling if the weather is anything like what they're predicting right now, we're going to need all the levity that we can get. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to your stories and um, all of that snow gear that you didn't wear last year, any of that cold weather gear, um, I would say definitely bring it and and hopefully we won't need to use it. (laughs) Okay, good. I'll bring bring it all to Boston. Big suitcase coming. (laughs) Excellent. All right. I'll see you soon, Shalane. Thanks so much. Okay. Eyebrows were raised, not just here in Boston, but across the country last fall, when uh, Suffolk County voters elected as the new district attorney succeeding Dan Conley, uh, a veteran lawyer, a native of Cambridge named Rachel Rollins, who had already uh, achieved some national notoriety for a set of proposals about what SDA she would not be prosecuting. Now, there's been a trend in criminal justice. Dan Connolly was a participant in this trend of uh, making some tougher judgments about uh, what to prosecute, what to devote resources to, to try to find other ways to handle nonviolent crimes. She listed 15 nonviolent crimes that she She took it a step further by putting out a whole list, which included things like shoplifting and uh, uh, marijuana dealing, uh, for instance. Uh, There's been a fair amount of controversy and pushback about that. And just last week, uh, there was some major league blunt pushback on it by Charlie Governor Charlie Baker's public safety secretary, Thomas Turco, in the form of a letter that apparently was made public before D.A. Rollins heard about it or had a chance to read it. That sent the new D.A. into something of an angry orbit uh, in which she lashed out at the governor and suggested that, well, you know, a lot of the defendants in these nonviolent cases don't have the clout that the governor's son had when when his alleged groping case uh, came to light. You know, so there was a lot it of got back a little and, personal. It, got a little personal in a hurry. Things apparently have calmed down. But before that all erupted, uh, I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with her at some length. And I think you'll get a sense of who the woman behind all the controversy is from our conversation. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of interesting facts to know and tell about the newly elected Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins. But for me, as a Cambridge native, probably the most significant fact you may not know about her is that she also 
is a native of Cambridge. That's right. Would that make you a townie, D.A. D. Mm, Rollins? Uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. I'm an Armando's pizza girl. I am... Still um, good, by the way, still even, good, though even though I believe though Armando away. is yeah. long Armando gone. is yeah. gone, but his grandson, Michael, owns the store yeah. uh, or owns is running the shop. But yeah, I was born in Boston, um, lived there for about two years, but overwhelming majority of my life, I lived in Cambridge. My parents still live in North Cambridge, mm-hmm. and the house that my mom and her 10 brothers and sisters were raised in. So um, love Cambridge very much, uh, deeply committed to that place. You know, uh, you're a DA of Suffolk County now, which is Boston, Chelsea, and uh, Winthrop. Winthrop and Revere. And, yeah. and uh, Revere. Chelsea, Cam- Cam- Boston, Chelsea, Winthrop and Revere. Right. right. Yep. Uh, but let's just take a moment and talk about Cambridge. Sure. Because... Uh, you know, people who don't live there think of Cambridge as, oh, Harvard Square, and now nowadays Kendall Square, yeah. and MIT, college students yep. and so forth. But it's actually a very diverse city with all of the wonderful things and many of the problems yeah. uh, that come with that. And I know growing up in Cambridge, I lived in a racially mixed neighborhood of Cambridge, yeah. uh, down uh, near uh, the Raymond, Raymond Park, Walden Absolutely. Street area, the Peabody School, now the uh, Graham, Graham and Parks yeah. School. Uh, and um, there were, was uh, racial tension. There was violence. Uh, there were incidents involving Cambridge police. Yeah. Uh, what have you observed about how Cambridge has changed and what the impetus for change was in Cambridge over the last few decades? Yeah, I mean, I think one beautiful thing about Cambridge growing up there was incredibly diverse. The neighborhood I grew up in, I started on Howard Street and then Franklin Street right around the corner uh, and then in North Cambridge. But we had neighborhoods with international families speaking multiple languages, interracial couples, um, same-sex families. Uh, we we were so fortunate to grow up in a place where people were included. Um, Your parents were my an parents is, couple, and right? still are, and <laughs> moved to Cambridge because of that yeah. tolerant reputation. Is that yeah? True? So my dad is um, a second generation Irish American. Um, uh, veteran, served in the Vietnam War, um, met and fell in love with my mom. But back in 1968-69, Boston was not the sort of melting pot that it is right now. My mom is first-generation woman from Barbados. Both of her parents are from beautiful island uh, Barbados. Um, And rather than sort of deal with the day-to-day sort of heckling and and other instances, uh, they moved to Cambridge, which was a little bit more inclusive and, you know, a mile across a bridge. So it wasn't like, you know, they moved to Prague. They moved right across the bridge to Cambridge. Um, What's really nice about Cambridge is I think Harvard has started and MIT um, being more involved in the community. Um, I think a lot of the school systems have taken advantage of the fact that we have two of the best universities in the world, not just in Massachusetts or New England, there. Um, We have a police force. You know, we had the unfortunate situation with Skip Gates. Uh, a few years back. I think the police force has worked really hard at community policing. Um, One of my dear friends was the first female lieutenant in the Boston Police Department. She then went on to do wonderful things and is now a great lawyer at a a big firm in Boston. But we have a a chief of police in Cambridge that is an African-American man. So there are opportunities in law enforcement that we haven't seen. I'm 48 in my lifetime, right? Like we now have a 
uh, chief of police and uh, commissioner in Boston, African-American man. Um, we've, we, we are lucky in Boston that we've had female commissioners. Um, very rare when you, when you look around the country. We were one of the, you know, we, we are leading the nation in those areas in law enforcement. And I think Cambridge is very similar to that as well. What does it mean uh, and I, I think even more, uh, I'm thinking even more long term, that we have people of color in positions of authority in this area that where we never had them before. Sure. Obviously, in the short term, there's this significance. Another barrier falls. Yeah. That's great. Uh, but down the road, is it... Uh, do we do we want to and can we anticipate a time when we don't even notice or is it is that the wrong idea do we want to notice because it has a, a particular long-term benefit yeah I, th- I think that's a great question I mean what I'm excited about is my daughter's 15 she's grown up in a world where she's seen tons of leaders that are different genders different identities um, different ethnicities and racial backgrounds, and that's not as important to her as it was maybe to me, or might still be to me, or certainly to my parents who, you know, in their lifetime, they never thought they'd see some of the things we're seeing with with respect to leadership. In particular, though, John, in criminal justice matters, because there are so many racial disparities um, across the nation, and sadly, even in Suffolk County and in Massachusetts, with respect to population population percentages um, as compared to incarceration population percentages, which are significantly higher for black community, for example, and Latinx individuals. It does matter to see a leader that represents that community, at least um, in, in appearance, right? And what's really great, and I'm proud about myself as a sort of more seasoned, we'll say, I won't say old, but more seasoned uh, DA, I've been a prosecutor. I've been a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I have worked for the federal government and the state government. I have worked in the private sector. I'm a mom. I am also the oldest of five children. I have a brother that's incarcerated. Uh, I'm the mother of a 15-year-old, but as a result of my siblings, a few of my siblings coming into contact or having mental health issues or substance use issues, I'm the guardian of two of my nieces. I have DCF in my life, not because I've done anything wrong, but because I'm a foster parent. So all of those lived experiences come to work with me every day. And I think, sadly, um, you know, the police get a bad rap. They do a job every day, John, that you and I would not sign up for, even if it was three times the pay. They are very rarely told they're doing exceptional work. Um, it's easy to complain. And then I think police and black and brown men suffer from the same problem with the media. We only ever see white police officers shooting unarmed you know, people. That's what the media is showing every day nationally. And we rarely see black and brown men and people engaging in positive things. We see them criminalized, et cetera. So I want to give a shout out to the fact that the police are doing a great job, but I'm also excited that we're seeing different people running organizations. I think different perspectives matter. Have you ever been a victim of crime? Ooh, um, no, I, I would say I have not been the victim of a violent crime. Um, I certainly know as the sibling of somebody who, uh, or, or loved ones who have made bad choices or have been in situations that they probably shouldn't have been in, I know what it feels like to um, 
to be a family that is feeling either shame or feeling as though the system isn't working for them. Now, and the way I explain that is families of defendants, this criminal justice system works for them, too. They they didn't do anything wrong, aside from love somebody who made either a bad decision or found themselves in a circumstance where they made it, you know, they, they engaged. Um, and what I really want to do is not coddle people, but I want to make sure that people understand the system. It is even with, with minor nonviolent crimes, when you get arrested for something, it's scary. And even if it's not a homicide, it still deeply impacts your life. You have to show up to court um, many times. It's multiple times before it's resolved. You got to take the day off of work. Um, if you don't have a job like you or I have where we can just say, you know what, I'm going to take a, a vacation day or I wasn't in and you don't have to tell somebody why. If you spend the night in jail, that could have significant collateral consequences. And I get it. There might be listeners that say, well, then don't break the law and you won't do that. But I will say that there are some communities, and I, I am the DA, I know this, that are sort of over-policed. The police are often in these communities more. And justifiably, because there are violent crimes happening there. But I promise you, John, if I had my detective follow you for two months and watch every single thing you did, driving, you know, we could find laws that you would break and we could charge you with things um, as a result of that. So sometimes because the police are there, it results in more um, more crimes uh, being charged. But what's troubling is when we have lots of unsolved homicides, which we do, that doesn't work for me. It, it can't be that you're always in this community charging low level crimes, but in that same community, you're not solving the homicides. We need to talk out loud about that, and I need to make sure my office and me are doing better. I mean, it, uh, elected officials at all levels, no one more than a DA, faces this extremely complex, difficult balancing act to balance uh, a range of competing but equally valid interests. And, you know, when I think back just in my lifetime, which is, you know, I mean, we're talking about 100 years, yeah, let's right. be honest about <laughs> right, it, because right, right. um, I'm older than dirt. But uh, I've seen uh, the emergence of all sorts of adjustments by the criminal justice system sure. to try to be more accommodating or empathic toward crime victims. Yep. I've seen the emergence of the victim witness uh, advocate yep. uh, uh, process. What path do you see for yourself? as a DA in terms of making crime victims feel that they have a friend sure. in, in, in office? Yeah, I, I have to give uh, props to Mayor Walsh. Um, I think he's been um, exceptional in making sure that his trauma team, when something happens in Boston, and I know uh, Chief Delahunty and Winthrop and Chief Guido and Revere and Chief Kais and, and Chelsea are doing great things as well. Um, but luckily for those communities, they're not seeing the number of homicides, for example, that we are and violent crimes. So I took office January 2nd of 2019. Um, 10 homicides since January 1st we've had. And so Mayor Walsh has a trauma team that goes out to the scene and is immediately for the family members, for witnesses, um, if people survive. Because we have scenes, for example, where two people are shot, one perishes and the other one lives. Um, we are getting people treatment, right? Trauma services uh, and 
um, assistance in those circumstances. Above and beyond that, John, my office, which I have about almost you know, close to 300 employees, half of them about are lawyers, but I have victim witness advocates, I have investigators. Every homicide we have, every violent case, sexually violent case, we get a victim witness advocate for that victim or that family. Um, and what we're realizing now, John, is trauma impacts people, obviously. We know that subconsciously, but we have um, entire communities uh, in in Boston that have had multiple homicides on that street or in that community every single year. And it's almost, and this is horrific, but the norm for that community. As I mentioned earlier, my dad's a Vietnam veteran. There are some young people in Boston that have seen more shootings and death than my father might have as a a Vietnam War veteran, right? So we need to make sure we're taking care of our young people in our communities that are where the violence happens the most. And I'm excited we're going to be hiring more victim witness advocates from our office. We can't do our work as lawyers without our investigators, victim witness advocates, admins, and operation people. So I am really lucky to have inherited this office. Well, I'd like to go on for uh, uh, with this, but we, you and I have to go run over to sure. the TV studio <laughs> to tape an interview that airs um, uh, that you can find on our website, CBS Boston, if you're interested in seeing that. But uh, if people, we are Alston's leading podcast, at least that's what we claim. <laughs> right, that's and, and number, <laughs> number one, one, thank number you, John. One. All right, number uh, one. <laughs> so I know that we have a lot of Suffolk County residents who, who check us out. Yeah. Uh, if they want to reach out to your office, they have information. Sure. They want to know more about what you're doing. They mm -hmm. want to share some concerns uh, with you. What's the best way to get in touch with you? They can go right to our website. Uh, which is, you know, if they look up Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Um, we are out in the community, John, which is great. One of the things I implemented is the new DA. There's never been a, a State of the Union for the DA. We do quarterly community meetings. Our first one was March 28th in Roxbury. Our next one is in June in uh, Chelsea. We'll be coming to, you know, a podcast or a theater near you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, get in touch with us. We are out in the community. Um, you have some great elected officials in the Alston, Brighton area. Area that are actively involved in criminal justice reform. I know Senator Brownsberger, this is his uh, district um, or jurisdiction. So uh, reach out to us if you have suggestions, if you have criticisms, if you have comments. I want to hear it all because this is your office. We work for you. Well, I notice you're very... Um uh, aggressive in a good way about uh, taking advantage of media platforms to communicate. Sure. Please uh, consider Studio BZ your second home, and we'd like to have you back here as often as we can. I love it. I will be. Thank you so much. Rachel Rollins, Suffolk County DA, thanks for joining us on Studio BZ. That's them is the way the WBZ Studio News Department works. The official kickoff of Marathon Weekend begins this Thursday at the Statehouse mm -hmm. when the traditional olive wreaths for the winners arrive from Greece and are presented to the Boston Athletic Association in a ceremony that is a celebration of history. And joining us to talk about the significance of the wreath ceremony are the Consul General of Greece in Boston, Stratos Ephthimiou, and Nicholas Cordes from the Alpha Omega Council of Boston. That's the Greek-American organization which began this tradition back in 1984. Thank you 
you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. And we should talk first of all about the history of this because I don't think we stopped to think about this. When the first modern Olympics was held in Athens in 1896, right? Representatives from Boston were there. And so the next year they came back and established the Boston Marathon on Patriots Day. And so there is this important historical tie between, yeah, between Greece and Boston. And between uh, Boston, the Athens of America, and Athens. And Marathon is very close to uh, Athens, and the Battle of uh, uh, Marathon uh, was very instrumental for the survival of the Athenian democracy. Mm -hmm. It was a battle between the soldiers and slaves of an empire and free citizens who fought for the survival and the defense of their democracy. Uh, so there are many, many connections, and the marathon takes place, takes place on the Patriots Day, Patriots Day in Boston, in this city upon a hill, mm -hmm. which has a very special uh, place in the constitutional history of this country. Mm -hmm. So much historical significance. And Nick, yeah. the, the marathon wreath ceremony was established in 1984 uh, to continue that connection between the countries. And your organization uh, sees the marathon as an important symbol. Of that. We, we do. We see it as a symbol of the connection between uh, ancient Athenian democracy, uh, what makes Boston special as a place educationally, uh, its leadership on so many moral issues over the years, and, and its leadership role today throughout the United States, and the learning that takes place here, and the way that Boston projects itself throughout the world through its educational yeah. institutions. Yeah. So it, the, the, the marathon connects Boston to ancient Greece and it connects it to the future of the United States and civics and voting and the importance of citizen participation. And the wreaths are so beautiful. We have hmm. one here. And the crucial thing to point out about this, it says there on the base in memory of Stylianos Kyrakides, who really was the first person to conceive of the idea of a charitable run. Quickly tell his story. Sure, sure, thank you. So he ran in 1946. He ran right, in 1946. He, the doctors didn't give him permission to run, but mm. she said, since I have a document from my athletic federation, I, I can run. And they let him run, and you know, despite all predictions, he managed to win. He was very much encouraged by a little boy uh, who became later the governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, mm -hmm. uh, who was, uh, I, I, you know, one person who supported the, you know, mm -hmm. this, the establishment of the Boston Marathon Wreath Ceremony in uh, 1984. But still, you was, uh, he became a legend because he was the first marathon winner who ran for a charitable cause. He fundraised and he collected the uh, money and food for uh, the Greek people who just uh, got out of uh, the Second World War. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the fought against the Nazism. There was a civil mm -hmm. war. So he brought with him uh, a boat full of food. He was greeted in Athens by one million people. He was a national hero. But the, th the thing is that he inspired the generation of winners to run for a cause, for, to run for something bigger and greater than themselves. And now, of course, the Boston mm. Marathon is all about that. There are, of course, still the elite runners, but it's, so much of it is about charity. Nick, after the marathon bombings in 2013, you began the Marathon Education Initiative for middle school students, and you talk about teaching democratic ideals. Tell us about the essay competition that's part of this effort. At the wreath ceremony, you give out the awards to 12 winners, right? 12 exactly. young people who've won the winning essays. So we promote, so what we do is we try to get children to think about democracy and what does it mean to be a citizen mm. and what are your obligations of uh, in a democratic society in addition to your benefits 
Mm. What does it mean to vote? And uh, so we, we try to mix those thoughts up to add life and, and blood and life into the curriculum. Yeah. And uh, this year, a thousand students wrote essays. Wow. Uh, and we're working along the marathon route. And we picked the 12 that we thought were the most inspired in some way. That's wonderful. And Governor Dukakis will be there Thursday night. He will be there. And he, this ceremony will take place at the State House, at the at the center of uh, democracy. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a very symbolic uh, ceremony. And the wreath ceremony, wonderful. Thursday night at 6 p.m. You're going to be hosting. I'm excited be to be with you. Very I'll cool. be hosting, and WBZ is thrilled to be a part of it. Thanks so much for it, coming in to talk it about it. It means so much uh, to us that you are going to be with us for one more year. It'll be wonderful. <laughs> and we're very Thank appreciative so to WBZ TV for its wonderful 35 years of broadcast journalism of the marathon. Perform it's a great civic function. And we're going to honor WBZ and the director, Mr. Mark Lund. So it's uh, for you know, your contribution to the coverage and to the promotion of, uh, of the marathon. You are the marathon station. Yes, we well, are. We're excited. For a long time now. Lot Thank you both so much. Weekend. This was wonderful. Thank you so Thank much. You. Boston Hill, the glittering jewel city of the world. One short year ago. John Keller and I started talking on the podcast. Liam joined us halfway through yeah. the year. No, I muscled my this way in. You were kind of forced no, on no, us. I did. I, did. I, did. I forced deal. my way we in. We intended for this to be uh, the WBZ team, right? Contributing. Yeah. This happens to work out best for our schedules when we're here. And then throughout the year, we've had Lisa Hughes and David yeah. Wadin, Eric Bill Fisher, Shields. Louisa Moeller, all our Dr. Marshall, Malcolm WBZ Marshall. team. And it's great, I yeah. think, for... Podcast listeners, I know when I listen to podcasts, I love to hear the behind the scenes news gathering from different news organizations or just kind of uh, just general behind the scenes the information about what goes into producing journalism and a lot of fun, I think. I think so, too. And as I, I what I did was I gathered lots of uh secrets about John and Paula and then I extorted them and blackmailed my way onto the show <laughs> and I think it's been for the best uh, frankly for all of so us so he could just tease us mercilessly yes. well actually it's funny you should I know you're joking about that of course because I, I personally have no secrets I don't know <laughs> no, about you Paula right. he's right out there with them many of which we've had to cut from the podcast there's nothing actually. I do when I'm alone in the car that Catholic most Bostonians don't. don't also do so I'm not I'm not shy about that but, <laughs> wait what but, okay, that's, uh, a, that's a podcast right on. there but no, I have to, I have to say say, for me, we've had some very interesting guests, but one of the most uh, enjoyable and interesting parts of doing this over the last year has been getting to know you folks and some of my colleagues a little more. I mean, you work uh, closely together, but it's hectic here. And you really don't necessarily, we don't, do, aren't much for big parties, at least, well, I go do my partying separately. There's no, <laughs> no need to get into that at any great length here. But, uh, but uh, you know, for instance, you know, Paul, I knew you were, you know, a, a brilliant journalist and extremely well-read. I didn't know about the whole pie thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> I know. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. Yeah, uh, John had a front row seat to... What was really the thriller in Manila, a but in Austin between you and me about and it was apple versus <laughs> well, it was apple pie right. versus pecan versus yes. pecan at pecan, Thanksgiving. Rather. It was a it was a question of which is what more is the, of the a Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving pie. pie. Liam knows how to press my buttons, yeah, oh, and apparently. how to bring out deep emotions and feelings. <laughs> it was really it was really ugly. There were some people <laughs> who who reached out were concerned about Paula, 
and, and her mental health. I, I mean, you two <laughs> were animated. I have a baseball bat in my trunk. I was ready to go get it. Would you have used it on me? I assume that you would have used it on me in that scenario. Well, it reminds me of one time I came out of my apartment where I was living in an apartment in Belmont, and uh, I, I heard a noise, and out in the street there were two cats, mangy cats, laying in the street side by side trying to scratch each other's wow. eyes out. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do, of course. My wife, who's cool in any circumstance, <laughs> runs back inside, comes back with a bucket of ice, and throws the ice on the cats, and they go, Row! and they went scrambling off yeah. there. So next Good time story, you'll, right? Next time you'll throw, next time you'll throw <laughs> ice on better, us. That's better than the one about the, the schoolgirls uh, relieving themselves in the entryway. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, we'll, leave that. Oh, well that, leave that one got cut. cut. Yeah, that one did get cut. You <laughs> bastard, oh, Jonathan. Leave that, that one. Let's leave that so, edited out. Uh, so in addition to the pie debate, uh, we, we had... Wonderful um, guests during this year. We had yeah, Henry we Winkler, the Thongs oh, was yeah, on. Was Paula cried during the I Henry did. Winkler interview. It was just cried. so emotional to have him here. Uh, you know, you'd grown up watching him, and that we had the the, the Lavi Bot, the famous Lavi yes. Bot episode. Uh, and then from that uh, to the other end of the spectrum, uh, we had uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet laureate of Somerville, Lloyd yeah. Schwartz, mm. talking about his his poetry. That yeah. was a uh, fascinating. We interview. were sitting down with this poet laureate. And then minutes later, I went on a rant about bare feet. And so, it, you know, then yeah. those are equally, I think, intellectually stimulating. Well, you know, to, and this is why I think, you know, we really are uh, in some ways, at least we try to be uh, reflective of Alston. <laughs> Alston can be down and dirty. Oh, yeah. And, and very, and very funky. And also very cerebral and artistic and creative. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to think at least we're trying to be reflective of the community we, we work in and love so much. Paul, do you have a favorite moment from this last year? Um, I would have to say the Fonz yes. was a favorite moment. That was a great interview, and he was so lovely. Liam, I had no idea you were such a ball of neuroses <laughs> and, really uh, and, and bizarre uh, fears and yeah. so easily disgusted yeah. and I know, actually, I've been I've been sort of troubled by my own discovery of that. No, yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a very opinionated person. I've, I've just no. whether it, whether it's a pie or bare feet or the en- sad endings to movies. For instance, pajamas. Okay, yeah. we've been teasing this all year <laughs> that we were. Gonna, Did we ever wind up talking about? We never talked about can we my do pajama it in just pants a nanosecond, I can do it. Well, he, right. he, he Jonathan's the one who suggested. Well, okay, frame right. the issue. Go well, ahead, I frame just, your issue. I with woke pajamas. up uh, a few months ago, uh, one morning, with you know having to get the kids and went to go put on pajama pants that my wife had bought for me. Yeah. I, I generally don't so wear pajamas. So you sleep in the pants. nude, otherwise. I though. do not sleep in pajamas. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. <laughs> Um, and I go, I put these new pajama pants on and then go to put my phone into my pocket. You know, my son is crying in the crib. I'm trying to get to him and not stumble over everything. There are no pockets in the pajama pants. Mm-hmm. And you have to have your phone with you. Well, whether it's my phone or whatever it might be, I thought immediately, I thought in this moment, I want to prosecute the person who made these pajama pants and didn't put pockets in them. Wow. Because, I mean, how can you ever have pants that don't have pockets? If you want them to be slender and slim fit. Yeah, but uh, Liam, I'm hearing a lot of anger here. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, there are nice pajamas, right? Silk pajamas, yes. and not <laughs> everyone. We call them house pants. House pants in yeah. our family. House yeah. pants. Yeah. What is this in 1955? Isn't that a James Brown song. Grandma, oh, that was hot pants. Grandma usually sends my husband and all the uncles house pants for Christmas. House pants. <laughs> They're like little drawstring plaid. Oh, oh can we pants say that not can house plants? House pants. House pants. You know, you stand there with the kids making pancakes. Yeah. Okay, fine. I feel You're like that would be like pancakes. I feel like Ebony's. Scrooge would call them house pants. There's house pants. By the way, bathrobes on a man. Never. Never well, ever wear a bathrobe. Oh, come wrong on. With a oh, you wear a bathrobe? That's disgusting. A oh, a man in a bathrobe <laughs> is a disgusting thing. Why would that be disgusting? Oh, it's just. You know what? It's your age. You're so young, you wouldn't. Leo, can her you, her Jonathan, can you ever imagine putting on a bathrobe, Jonathan, our producer? If you're chilly? No. I can imagine it. Out of yeah, a but shower? you wouldn't. It, 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 Why not? You, it's, you, you, you're sending you're a his message. Rules for Why life. are you thinking about this? I know. Well, Liam's just, rules for life are yeah. so random. All this education in. This is what you're thinking. Yeah. Well, I'm not, See, I this mean, is the problem. I can chew gum and, and walk at the same time. Liam, okay. let's let's back up a little bit and make this simpler. What is it about the world that doesn't disgust you? <laughs> that list might be shorter. <laughs> Children and dogs. Yeah. Yes. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I actually do have pajama pants with pockets. Yeah, of course. If they didn't, you'd go. What the heck happened here? Who was who designed this? Is it that crucial to your happiness? See, because I think you don't get it because you're a woman, and I think a lot of times Uh-oh. women's pants don't have pockets, right? <laughs> no, isn't that true that that a lot of women's pants don't have pockets? Not a lot, because women have most of purses don't. often but that most they of them use don't. instead. Most of them do. Dudes, we don't have we don't have purses. We, there's the purse movement. There's the purse. Come on, you do too have a purse. I've seen it. <laughs> it's well, that is my <laughs> European uh, carryall. Not to be referred to as Do you Liam's see the purse. kind of BS the, 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 he the, 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 he's trying to get away with if I weren't here? Yeah, I know. Oh, man. A European guy. That is a shoulder bag. Okay, that is... It's a man purse. Well, Don't be shy about it. But, a pocketbook. <laughs> but this, all the stuff that the women put in the purse. The women. The, the know, women. Here we go again. Oh, hey, they, Jonathan Van Ness would beg to differ. Well, you think this is the 1950s still? Come on. No, the stuff that, that women put into a purse, mm-hmm. the chapstick, the gum, the, the the wallet, all that stuff, that goes into our pockets generally. And now if you're giving me pants that don't have pockets, what am I to do? What am I to do? Wow. Now I have to carry a purse around. Yeah. Uh, Immerse. I'd like to remind you guys, we're supposed to be talking about the year anniversary. Well, we are. <laughs> no, but we then are. we got into the pajamas. Go with the flow. These are the kinds <laughs> of topics. Oh, my. Okay. All right. So uh, oh we my. are still available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe and share. Uh, we will have our one-year anniversary show coming up next week. And do let us know if you have a favorite interview or segment and who you'd like to hear from next year. Our Twitter handle is at StudioBZPod. I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. And I'm at Keller at Large. I'm at Liam WBZ. And, and we'll, we'll be seeing, seeing you. you. I love when you pretend to forget. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, thank you. Thank you.